The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. 2 Corinthians chapter number 5 for our text reading here this morning, 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. It's so good to have each and every one of you in the house of the Lord this morning, and we're looking forward just to our time around God's Word, just studying line upon line and precept upon precept. 2 Corinthians chapter number 5 is where we will be this morning. Uh, If you're visiting with us here today, we're currently in a series that we've simply entitled, Help, I Want to Change. And uh, if we were to be transparent one with another, uh, all of us have had at times uh, things in our lives that we would like to see change. And sometimes they're surface things and other times they're very a deep part of who we are and and how we live. And, And so we're trying to look at the Word of God and ask ourselves scripturally, biblically, how does change actually occur? Not the type of change that we kind of go at it for a week or a month and then it just kind of dissolves into the distance, but true, genuine, lasting change. How is that accomplished? How does that actually take place? And today we find ourselves in 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. So as we've been talking the last few weeks, um, we've tried to lay a foundation that God loves you. He loves us, all right? He adores you. He affirms you. And in Christ, and that's, that's the key word, when you're in Christ, he approves of you. So if my new identity is no longer rooted in my performance, if my identity and the way I am perceived by God is no longer anchored to my behavior and what I do and how I perform, but our identity truly is anchored into the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf on the cross of Calvary. If, if that is the case, then here's the question. Why not just behave any way we want? It's a valid question, isn't it? I mean, after all, if, if I'm in Christ, I'm proved, and in Christ, I'm accepted, and in Christ, I'm adored, and, and my identity in God's eyes is no longer anchored, it's no longer fixed to my performance and what I do, then why not just cast it all off? What's, what's the point of trying even to attempt to live righteously? What's the point of even trying to uh, obey God's laws? I mean, after all, if we're in Christ, what's it even matter? What's the point to living for God? And that is a very valid question. It's a real question and a question that we're going to seek to attempt to answer here over the next few minutes. The church at Corinth (laughs) had some issues. For those of you who have studied some of the manuscripts and some of these cities that these letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to these churches, you'll find that each of these churches that he wrote epistles to had backgrounds. Uh, They had stories behind them. The city of Corinth was a very popular city. It was a city of much commerce in the ancient world. It wasn't necessarily like an agricultural area. I mean, Corinth was a very much a modern-day city, much like San Francisco or Manhattan would be today. And yet within the city of Corinth was a lot of paganism. There was a lot of just wicked sin that took place in this city. And unfortunately, a lot of it infested the church at Corinth. 
And so when the Apostle Paul begins to pen 1 Corinthians and then later 2 Corinthians, he is having to address a lot of sin that has crept into the church. And not just sin, but he is now having to address not just preferential differences, but very real doctrinal differences that made their way into the church. I mean, to the point where there was all kinds of doctrinal deep errors, to the point where there were people who were really even wondering if Jesus was God, if he really was deity, not just surface stuff, but deep doc, fundamental doctrinal type issues here. And, and so the Apostle Paul is writing these epistles to try to address some of the sin issues that are in the church, to address some of the doctrinal issues that are in the church. And, and in the midst of all of this, he makes some statements that help us to fully understand how these changes were to be made at the church of Corinth within these individual people's lives. And and one of these statements that emerges comes out of 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. So inside your service program that you should have received on your way in, there should be a little Bible study that you can use to follow along as we study the Word of God together this morning. And if you are physically able, I'd like to invite you to stand as we begin by reading a very short passage of Scripture, and then throughout the sermon, we're just going to unpack it as we move our way uh, through this study. Second Corinthians chapter number 5, and I want to focus on one phrase as a launching point for this morning's study. So if God approves us, if He accepts us, then He affirms us in Christ, why not just behave any way we want? Why not just do whatever we want? What, what now is the point to living for God? And, and how are we motivated to live for God? And the Apostle Paul answers that question in the beginning of verse 14 when he says, For the love of Christ constraineth us. Now that little word constraineth, it means to compel. It means to motivate. It is the love of Christ, his love for us, the expression of his love for us, the functional sacrifice of his love for us that is to motivate us, that is to compel us. Literally, the Bible uses the word constrains us from living as the Corinthians had been living and believing as the Corinthians had been believing. It's not guilt, not shame, not duty, but love. The love of Christ constrains, compels, and motivates this new life in Christ. This morning, I want to speak on the importance of healthy motives if we're going to see lasting change take place in our lives. Shall we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, once again we come to you and we, we just thank you with hearts full of gratitude for the great love by which you loved us. When we were dead in our trespasses, in our sins, God, you loved us. When we were running from you, you loved us and pursued us and chose us, Lord. When we were ignoring you and wanted nothing to do with you, you were strategizing how you would reach into the muck and mire and literally set our feet upon a rock. God, you loved us with a great love. 
In fact, the word tells us that greater love has no man than this, than the love you demonstrated for us. Lord, I pray that our hearts would be once again captured by the greatness of your love, the wonder of your compassion, the, the, the depths in which you went to pursue us with a heart of love. And I pray that as we get a full glimpse of that love, that it would compel us, it would motivate us, it would constrain us, God, to be, to do, and to behave. Lord, as, as Christ would want to do through us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. As many of you know, I grew up in a family with six siblings, and so with me being the eldest of seven children, uh, there were a lot of fun adventures that we would go on at different periods in our lives. There, there was a season uh, where we had one very little small car, and, and maybe even one or two of you in this room will remember this. It was a little gold Tercel. It was a four-seater vehicle, and for a certain period of time, our entire family, all nine of us, would have to squeeze in to this little four-seater car. It had a hatchback, and so me and two of my siblings would sit in the back, and my dad had these bungee things that kind of <laughs> strapped us in a little bit, and we used to drive around for several weeks in this vehicle, and, and I remember on a couple of occasions, we would all jump out. It literally, have you ever been to the circus before, and there's that little car driving around, and all of a sudden, the clowns start jumping out one by one, and they just keep coming and keep coming and keep coming? Uh, that was the mental image you need to have to truly understand what would take place as me and my siblings would make their way out of this particular vehicle, and it wasn't necessarily the most dependable one. In fact, in at certain times, this thing would break down and we'd have to kind of be on the side of the road and my dad would have to do what it takes to kind of make it get running again. And how many of you have ever had a car that just wasn't dependable? You, you got in it and you just didn't know if it was going to get you where you needed to be or, or a car that you didn't mind maybe taking around town, but you weren't going to take it in on any long trips because you knew you just, you just weren't sure whether or not it was actually going to get you where you needed to go. It wouldn't drive you where you needed to be driven. And, and in much the same way, there are motivations and there are drives, if I can call them that, that exist in our world today that have not fully taken us where we needed to go. They, they are drives and they are motivations that don't have the capacity to get us where we need to get to, to drive us, if we can use that terminology, where we need to be driven to and ultimately get us to our desired destination. You see, your motives, your drives, those things that push you forward in the inner parts of your heart do matter. Not all motives are created equal. There are motives that have the power to constrain, to compel you to get to where you ultimately need to be in the sight of God. And there are motivations, there are drives that do not have the ability to take you where Jesus Christ would desire for you to go because motives matter. Here's the theme. If you want to write this down to really get your head around what we're trying to understand today, and that is simply this. Your motives will dictate the effectiveness and longevity of your change. Your motives, the things that drive you, 
the things that compel you from the innermost parts of your soul, the, the choice of motives, those things that drive, those things that compel, depending on what is driving you, depending on what is uh, compelling you, will dictate the effectiveness and longevity of your change. And so today, we're going to look at some of the healthiest motives, some of the most powerful motives that can lead us to genuine, lasting change in our lives, which leads us to our first thought this morning, and that is simply this. We should no longer be motivated by guilt. There are people in this world and their lives are motivated, they are compelled by guilt. What I did in my past, it drives them. I don't want to be like that anymore. I don't want to do that anymore. I don't want, to, I don't want that to happen anymore. And literally the driving force in their life is guilt. And so they're trying to, to be a good parent because they feel guilty about times where they weren't a good parent. They, they, they're driven to be a, a good spouse or a good employee, but it's driven by this sense of guilt and failure of, of what took place in the past. And, and guilt and shame is the driving force in their lives. The problem is wallowing in guilt while it feels awful is not a very effective, is not very effective at producing long-term change. In fact, the motive of guilt will sabotage future change in your life. While guilt does have the capacity to drive and to motivate you to some degree, it ultimately, like those old broken-down cars, will fail to get you where the Spirit of God desires to get you. Romans chapter number 8 and verse number 1 says it this way. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now, let me just say this. There is something biblically called conviction. There are times where the Spirit of God will kind of knock on your heart and will convict you of sin, will show you that the path you're walking on is not a healthy one. But conviction, when it comes from the Spirit, always pushes your attention back toward the person of Jesus Christ. It, if it's God-given conviction, it's going to point your eyes toward Jesus, point your eyes toward the cross, point your eyes toward the gospel. But when it's just guilt and wallowing in shame, guilt always turns your focus inward. It gets you to think about how you failed and how awful you are and day in and day out and week in and week out and month in and month out, you're obsessed with your failure, obsessed with your brokenness, rather than having a conviction that is turning your eyes toward Jesus, turning your eyes toward hope, turning your eyes toward the one who can do for you what you are absolutely incapable of doing on your own. Conviction's a healthy thing. Conviction from the Spirit of God to prompt our heart and, and kind of nudge us toward getting our focus back on Christ to living a life of faith healthy wallowing in self-pity, in shame, and in guilt is a motivation that will never ultimately get you to where you need to be. And that is why we're reminded that there is no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. 
I believe this quote will be in your handout. But obedience is not mainly a dutiful compliance to a set of rules. A lot of people think that's what the Christian life is. It's just a a duty to a set of rules. Religion is all these rules. Do this, do this, do this, and do this. Obedience, get this, is not mainly a dutiful compliance to a set of rules. Rather, obedience is a relational response of joyful gratitude to a benevolent rule maker who puts these things in our life not for our hurt, but for our help. Not to destroy us, but to develop us. And so obedience is not mainly just a duty to a compliance of rules. It's a relational response to, of, of joyful gratitude to a benevolent rule maker who loves you and cares about you. I was told the story on one occasion of a lady who was married to a man who was just harsh just a harsh man. He was harsh in his spirit. He was harsh in his words. He was harsh in his behavior and in his countenance. Just a harsh man, kind of bitter. And on regular occasions, he would come home to her and he would say, have you made dinner yet? And when she'd put dinner on the table, it was never good enough. It could always have been a little bit better. The house was never not quite clean enough. Things were not quite done as he would have them be done. And it was just a, he's just harsh. No grace. Harsh man. She kind of bore under it, but she could tell just her spirit beginning to just get squelched under a, an environment of no grace. A couple years later, this man came down with cancer and he passed away. And while it hurt her heart to some degree, there was a sense of relief that came with the reality that she'd no longer have to live in this environment of harshness, cruelty. For a while, she thought she'd never get married again. And and then she met a man who truly loved the Lord. He also had been married and his wife had passed away. They were both widowed. He was very different. His spirit was very gracious, humble, meek, loving, and gentle. It wasn't long they fell in love and they got married. And this husband was very different. Rather than demanding that dinner be made a certain way or that the house be put together a certain way, there was always a word of encouragement. There was always a spirit of grace. There was always a gratitude for what she did do. And over the years, this lady began to have the crust of bitterness kind of fall off. And what she began to notice in her heart, where before, when she was married to the man who was so harsh and so ungracious, she she would try to do what he wanted, but it just always fell on its face. But she was noticing now, even though he wasn't demanding it, even though he never asked, that the environment of love and affirmation and grace and encouragement did something in her heart. She was changing. Before, she found making dinner to be a drudgery, and so she just kind of whatever, wasn't a big deal. Now, out of a spirit of 
love and out of a spirit of gratitude. It was like she, she couldn't do enough in making that dinner the way it was. And, and, and now cleaning the house wasn't a drudgery. It wasn't a duty. It was an expression of her gratitude toward this man who loved her so dearly and who cared for her in spite of her brokenness. And, and now everything she did was in response of gratitude. It was in response of love. And she found that now she was actually doing things better in a greater way, not because it was demanded, but because the love compelled it. The love motivated it. I ask you this question. Is your Christian experience a drudgery, a duty, or do you find seasons of delight? in your service to God. If being a husband like God wants you to be a husband is always a drudgery, if parenting is always a drudgery, if coming to church is always just this duty, God wants to work on your heart. When you go to this book and you find, well, I guess this is what I got to do next. And it, it, it flows from a motive of, of drudgery. Ugh. Duty, well, I guess I have to. Then what it shows is that our hearts are not being driven by the strongest, greatest, most healthy of motives. Which is gratitude. For the great love that Christ has showed us. You say, what do you want us to understand? I want you to understand today that you no longer have to be motivated by your guilt. You no longer have to be driven by the shame of your past. While there will be seasons of spirit-filled conviction that'll push you back into the presence of Christ and push your focus back on Him and Him alone and His imputed righteousness and an identity that you can live Christ-honoring through, the reality is you no longer have to be driven by a shame, driven by a guilt, driven by uh, not being able to measure up anymore. You now have been offered a greater motivation, a stronger motivation, which leads us to our next thought this morning, and that is this. While we no longer have to be motivated by guilt and by shame, we ought to now be motivated by gratitude and the glory of God. Authentic Christian living is always motivated by gratitude, not guilt. One of the ways we know if we're walking in the Spirit, one of the ways we know that Christ is living His life through me is when we ask the Lord, God, search me and know me. Try my heart, the psalmist said. Know my thoughts. And so the psalmist would pray, God, search the inward parts of who I am. And when the Spirit of God reveals that, ask yourself, is my life being driven by shame? Is it being driven by guilt? Or is it being driven and motivated 
by a gratitude for God's great love toward me? Is it the love of Christ that constrains you? Is it his benevolent compassion toward you that compels you toward Christ honoring in his presence? What drives you? Not every motive is created equal. Not every motive will take you to a place that can glorify God. There are Christians who believe, as long as my behavior is all right, as, as long as I ultimately get to what the Bible says, I'm good. And unfortunately, they're wrong. It's not by might. It's not by power. It's by my spirit, saith the Lord. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatsoever you do, do it all to the glory of God. It should be a spirit of gratitude for what he's done for us. A spirit that desires to glorify him above all else. Not driven by shame, not driven by guilt, because eventually that vehicle will run out of gas. Ultimately, that vehicle will fall dead in its tracks. It won't take you to the life that God has for you. It'll motivate you for an hour. It'll motivate you for a week. But it does not have the capacity to go the distance. You need a deeper motive. You need a greater motive. And the greatest motive that there is, is the almighty glory of Jesus Christ. That is why we were created. That is the purpose that God has given to us, to glorify him above all else to reveal and to express gratitude for his great love for us to show the world around us that we serve a king who is worthy of all praise worthy of all majesty and worthy of all glory that my friend is the only drive the only motivation that will go the distance every other drive every other motivation will always fall dead in its tracks. Oh, now we're motivated by gratitude. Psalmist, the psalmist said in Psalms 34, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. When you forget that God is good, go back to his presence and remind yourself afresh and anew that your God is good. When your heart has grown cold, when you found yourself full of the world and full of all these other things, remind yourself in that moment that it is God and God alone that is good. It is God and God alone that satisfies. It is God and God alone that fully meets the needs that we have deep in our heart. Oh, taste and see. Remind yourself afresh and anew that God and he alone is good. And allow the motive and the gratitude to respond to that reality. God is good. He loves you. He cares for you. He adores you. Some of you would be familiar with the preacher Charles Spurgeon. He pastored in London in the late 1800s. He pastored what some people have called the first mega church in kind of modern civilization. 
He was well known for preaching the gospel, not just for justification, but also for sanctification. And he made this statement in one of his books entitled, Lectures to My Students. When I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I cried thinking that I could ever have rebelled against the one who loved me so and always sought my good. See, Pastor Spurgeon understood that guilt won't ultimately drive you and motivate you to the glory of God. That peer pressure won't ultimately drive you and motivate you to the glory of God. That just wanting to have a good self-image with all your church friends, while that motive is there in a lot of people, won't ultimately drive you and motivate you to live out the glory of God. He understood that the only authentic motive that can go the distance was something that was motivated by God's great goodness and a gratitude response toward that goodness that would ultimately manifest itself to the glory of God. I want to remind you today that God's glory must become our ultimate drive. God's glory must become our ultimate motive. For any motive shy of God's glory will eventually run out of gas, will eventually fall short, and will not get us to that place of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And that's what this series is about. It's about being changed into his image. Why? Because help, I need to change. And if you want to change, your motives matter. Motives matter. One theologian said it this way, and I believe they have it in your service guides. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. I no longer have to go sit at the table of this world looking for satisfaction and materialism, looking for satisfaction and popularity, looking for satisfaction and power, looking for satisfaction and sex, looking for satisfaction and sin. Now I can go and I can look for satisfaction at his good table. Oh, at his sufficiency. Because our God, he is good. And when we are ultimately satisfied in him, we're satisfied with his goodness we're satisfied with his will we're satisfied with his plan we're satisfied with his dreams we're satisfied with his direction when we are ultimately fully and holistically satisfied in him and him alone it is that reality that glorifies him People look and in a world running to this thing and running to that thing looking for ultimate satisfaction. We are a people who understand that because of the imputed righteousness of Christ, we already have everything we need to be satisfied because we are complete in him. I don't have to buy this and go there to have satisfaction. I can run to the throne room of grace and by faith claim the satisfaction that that has already been offered to me 
me in the person of Jesus Christ. And so when my heart is tempted to sin and my heart is tempted to be drawn away from the presence of Christ, I can by faith go to Christ and by faith receive the satisfaction that is already mine in him. Because he's good. He's loving. He's compassionate. A deep understanding of the gospel for Christian will strip you of being motivated by anything other than the glory of God. Unfortunately, many of you and me are driven by things lesser than Jesus. We're motivated by what the other people in this room are going to think called the fear of man. We're motivated by our past. We're motivated by our selfish desires. And the Bible declares, ultimately, Paul says to the church at Corinthians, at the end of the day, the motive that ultimately will last is when you are compelled by the love of Christ. When you come to see that he and him alone is enough. No longer motivated by guilt, now motivated by gratitude and the glory of God. So let's get personal with this as we wrap it up. If there is no fruit of righteousness blossoming in your life, if there's no Christ-likeness being manifested in your living, that reveals something. It reveals that you're truly, that you're not truly experiencing the depths of God's great grace. When there are manifestations and expressions of Christ-likeness, or if you're only experiencing small amounts in your life of these fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, the fruit of serving the Lord, the fruit of generosity, the fruit of loving others and telling others about Christ, if you find that there's very little of that fruit in your life, then it might reveal that you're only experiencing a little of His grace and that there's more that you can be basking in you could be experiencing him deeper because as you experience his great goodness and you're basking in it and you're reminding yourself of it and you're preaching the gospel to yourself on a regular basis, the love of Christ will constrain you. It will motivate you. It will produce fruits unto righteousness. You see, no longer is the motive wanting to look good. No longer is the motive what he thinks or she thinks. That's not an ultimate motive. The ultimate motive is gratitude. Gratitude for what he has done on our behalf and a desire to glorify him at my workplace, to glorify him in my home, to glorify Jesus in my marriage, to glorify Jesus in my child rearing so that everybody around us would see the glory of Christ through the expressions and functional manifestations of my life. That people would look and say, man, I don't believe in God. But I can't explain that person. I don't know how they do what they do. 
in that moment glorify him. It's God. It's his goodness, his greatness, and his glory that motivates. You see, I know I'm, I'm still having a hard time wrapping my own head around this, so I apologize for not being able to convey this in a way that I would desire to because in my spirit, I am so convinced of this in, in the depth of my heart in a way that right now my words can't even articulate. It's a little frustrating, but bear with me. At the end of the day, it is the glory of God that should be our primary motivation. And I know to some of us, that doesn't mean a lot. And to others of us, we just get confused by it. But when you come to bask so greatly in his presence, and you come to see God's will and his plan, and even the problems that he sends into your life, as good. And in that moment, you can say, oh, that all of this would be manifested for his glory. You're beginning down a path of ultimate change because it is only that motive and that motive alone, the glory of Christ, that can go the distance in conforming you to the image of Jesus Christ. Here's the big idea. I think they'll throw it on the screen to wrap this whole thing up. God's glory should motivate our good works. You say, well, if God loves me, if he adores me, if he accepts me in Christ, <laughs> I'll just go live any way I want to live. But that's not why you were put on this earth. You were not ultimately put on this earth just to be adored and just to be accepted and just to be approved. The reason you were left on this earth ultimately was for the glory of your creator and to simply take the gospel and conform it into this little thing just for you. I'm thankful for his adoration. I'm thankful for his acceptance. I'm thankful for his uh, affirmation. And stop there. You haven't come full circle with the gospel because ultimately the gospel's chief end is to conform you into an individual that can glorify Christ at your workplace and glorify Christ in your marriage and glorify Christ in your parenting and glorify Christ here in this church. That is the chief end of man to glorify him by enjoying him forever. That is why you exist. And so even in the moment where you're feeling the acceptance, the approval of, of God, Respond to that acceptance. Respond to that adoration. Respond to that affirmation. Oh, with gratitude that would cause your heart to live for his great, majestic glory. It's only in that life that you will find ultimate satisfaction. Because every other lesser thing will leave you wanting more. But living for his glory, living and recognizing his gratitude, satisfies. Now, here comes the clincher. I can't change my motives. You can't go home today and say, oh, well, self. <laughs> Pastor said it's time to change the motives. <laughs> 
flip a little switch and your motives are changed. It doesn't work that way. You see, you have no ability to change your motives. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can change your heart. Because right now, many of us, we still want to live for our own, our own dreams. And we want to live for our own desires. And we have our selfishness that creeps up day in and day out. And that shame and that guilt continues to be the driving force. And you can't change this on your own. And this is why you need the wonderful grace of Jesus. And I want to encourage you, run to his presence daily. And by faith, claim the new set of motives that he made available to you in Christ by his grace. The motives have already been imputed unto you. He's already offered them to you. And so when you're being driven and motivated and compelled by all these lesser things, run to the throne of grace. Remind yourself of your new identity in Christ and what has been given you at his riches. And by faith, claim the new motives that are already yours in Christ and live in response to that new reality. They're yours. He's given them to you. They've been offered. Accept that by faith, day in and day out, night in and night out, living for his ultimate glory. Could, Could you even imagine this? I mean, think about this for a moment. Think about an entire church where nobody was motivated by guilt Think about the joy that would exist that place. Uh, Think about the joy that would be spread around if people weren't driven by their past and their shame. Think about the countenance changes that would take place. Think about an entire church where nobody was motivated and driven by their selfish desires and their personal agendas. Their own preferences. But a church where every single individual was living for one applause, and that's the applause of those nail-scarred hands. Imagine a church where every Christian was free from being motivated by how they look to others. They're no longer driven by what this person is saying and what that person's doing and what this person, they don't, they're living for the glory and the adoration of one. They're living for him. They're no longer infected and affected by what somebody's saying and what somebody's thinking because their heart tank, their love tank has been fulfilled by basking in the glory of God. And now it's overflowing toward others, overflowing toward their friends, overflowing toward their enemies. Their heart is full. And because their heart is full, it just spreads all over the place. Can you imagine that type of church? No more this and that on Facebook. No longer whispering behind this person's back and whispering behind that person's back. No longer going to church like you're a victim. Woe is me. You're free. Because he has made you free indeed. Yeah, somebody might think something and they might not think something, but guess what? You're free from it. Because you know who you are in Christ. 
You know what has been granted to you at the throne of his grace and his imputed righteousness. And you live in response to that freedom. You're not in bondage anymore. You're not a victim anymore. You are victorious in Christ. While good works are not a means to spiritual maturity, they don't make you spiritual, they are marks of spiritual maturity. Somebody who is authentically basking in the presence of God, somebody who's experiencing full spiritual maturity, there are marks, and that is Christ-likeness demonstrated to those around us. So let me say that again. While good works are not a means to spiritual maturity, your good works don't make you spiritually mature. The imputed righteousness of Christ and basking, abiding in his presence is what makes you spiritually mature. If you are spiritually mature, there are marks, and those marks are good works. For the glory of Jesus Christ. What motivates your Christian life? And if it's anything less than gratitude in response to his wondrous glory, I want to say this. There are better motives, motives that can go the distance. And that motive is gratitude for his great goodness and the glory of his great name. That will drive you and will get you to where he ultimately desires for you to be. Because help, we need to change. And it's God's grace changing us from the inside out, our identities, our thoughts, our values, and our worldviews that ultimately will change the fruits of our behaviors. Shall we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, God, we love you.